Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? If you're interested in sponsoring the show, as I've said, still looking for long-term sponsors for 2023. I, uh, You should get at least 2 million, I would guess, probably 3 or 4 million impressions based off of those ad buys. So uh, that's a significant market. And if you're interested in reaching them, email me, libertylockdownpodcast at gmail.com. And we can discuss pricing and whether or not you think that the uh, return on investment will be worth your while. I'm a businessman. I'm not trying to con anybody. If if uh, if you have any questions, obviously I'll go back and forth with you, tell you what you can expect, and see if it uh, if it pencils, so to speak. Enjoy the show, and we are back with one of my most requested repeat guests, Mr. Jason Barak of Wall Street for Main Street. Welcome back, sir. Thanks, Clint. Glad to be back. And I'm glad I can actually talk about being a libertarian in Austrian school economics on a show like yours, because um, if I'm on a regular financial one, I say stuff that's too controversial, criticizing the Fed or the military industrial complex or big pharma, and then um, they threaten not to have me back. (laughs) (laughs) That will never be an issue here, I can assure you. Um, I'm going to be straight with you. I have not been following the economy as closely as I used to, uh, just because my show has taken me into the geopolitical realm. So for the past 30, 45 days or so, I've been, I mean, I've seen a lot of red in the market, but uh, that's about it. So if you could give us kind of just your broad update since you were last on, I'd appreciate it. Sure. Well, the Fed has continued to hike interest rates, and this has put more volatility and more pressure on pretty much all asset classes. Uh, The companies, the large cap companies that are on the major exchanges are doing the best they can to spin earnings and talk the Wall Street analysts with their revenues and earnings projection down to lower the bar so they can beat the bar. So their um, stock options are tied to earnings beats. A lot of people might not be aware of this. So um, but because of high interest rates, though, it's just starting. So a lot of people, um, they see the high interest rates, but what they might not understand is that it takes six, nine, 12 months to work its way through the system. So Clint, mm-hmm. you're in real estate. That's going to affect the two asset classes that I would say are the most sensitive to interest rate increases are bonds and then also real estate. So you're in real estate. Um, I have friends in real estate who are uh, real estate agents here in the DC metro area, area and the cost to get a mortgage, even if you have a pristine credit score, close to 800, a perfect credit score. I mean, you're borrowing over 7%. I think it's close to 8%. If you don't have a perfect credit score, I mean, your borrowing costs are astronomically higher at the company level. If you're a small cap company and you have debt on the balance sheet and you have a variable interest rate or revolving credit facility, you're borrowing a lot. So all these things are just starting to affect, except for bonds and uh, like corporate credit. So junk bonds and things like that, unless the Fed is secretly buying them, but we could talk about that maybe later. <laughs> um, the, the two main asset classes that are being affected the most are bonds and real estate for now. But As the Fed maintains high interest rates and interest rates, it looks like they may hike interest rates a little bit more, but they're not going to quickly lower them in the next couple of months unless we start to see banks fail. So we're starting to see some weakness in the bank shares. Um, The main one that I've been warning about for 12 months now has been Credit Suisse. And that's because I was literally speaking to hedge fund managers who are telling me over 12 months ago that Credit Suisse had tens of billions of dollars in bad loans out to hedge funds and private equity and family offices like Archego. So 
Ar the Archegos was in the news for a short amount of time, I think a couple weeks, about 12 months ago. And it, I think they had about 30 billion in bad loans and Credit Suisse only wrote off about four or five billion, which was all of their net profits for 2021. And then the mainstream financial media just buried it under the rug. It was like a really bad, it was a really bad cover up, putting lipstick on the pig. And everyone stopped talking about it for a while, but we, uh, those of us in the financial industry who were discussing this, we knew that the problem hadn't gone away, that mm -hmm. they had just stopped talking about it for a while and then eventually it come back to the surface. And now here we are, we're starting to see a lot of the problems are from the European banks, but because the banking system is so over leveraged, so many derivatives, so many counterparties, these things are connected. And that's, you're starting to see that with the bank shares now. Yeah. Well, it doesn't surprise me. And uh, it also doesn't surprise me that they, didn't deal with it they probably wrote off just as much as they they could in that fiscal year and then they'll they'll deal they're hoping that they can get some sort of capital infusion in the meantime to to save them and who knows maybe they will uh but i think that well, oh go ahead as we've discussed before on previous shows and i've talked about a, a ton on my youtube channel they can't fully deal with it because of the size of the derivatives market the sheer size so they can paper things over the Fed is the chief bailer outer. I know it's a ridiculous technical term, and just but but they literally bail out all these other major central banks in the G7. They actually have ironclad contract agreements for emergency currency swap lines that these other central banks, so the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank, um, the Bank of England, do not have to pay back. Mm -hmm. So they can draw because there's contractual obligations in an emergency, these other central banks in the G7 can literally draw US dollar currency swap lines. They can borrow dollars for hundreds of billions or trillions and not pay them back. So your listeners have probably seen the headlines that the Swiss National Bank had to draw, I don't know, 10 billion or 20 billion here. And the European Central Bank was drawing I think like an emergency for Credit Suisse, they had to draw an extra like 300 million in a 24 hour period. Those are those are just press releases that they decide to say out saying, these are what the, uh, this is a borrowing amount. The, the real number is nowhere near that. It could be 10, 20, 100 times that amount. Jesus Christ. Well, I, uh, I have also, obviously I agree with your assessment and, and I am privy to the fact that it takes, you know, usually six to 12 months, sometimes nine uh, lag time before interest rates really start to, rip the economy to shreds, but because we're so overly indebted, I'm kind of surprised it's not happening faster, uh, just because this is, as you've seen the charts, this is the most rapid they've ever increased rates in our lifetimes, at least. And and uh, I just don't think that we really know exactly how this is going to play out, but the Fed has been steadfast, uh, even in the most recent uh, hike meetings, or minutes, rather. It still sounded like Powell was committed to this process. And uh, as I told you pre-show, or we talked about via email this morning, um, I've got Tom Luongo who's saying that he believes that the Federal Reserve is is running in opposition to the Davos World Economic Forum crowd. You've already responded saying that you, you respectfully disagree. Uh, if you could just, for my audience's sake, tell me why you do disagree. Well, I've lived outside of DC for over 20 years now, and I have contacts in the military. I know Pentagon auditors, okay? <laughs> I, I know auditors at the Pentagon that have straight up told me that there's over a billion dollars per day that the Pentagon can account for, can account for in wasted spending, waste fraud, corruption, and abuse, and they just laugh about it because they know they're not going to be audited. So Wall Street and the large Wall Street banks own the Federal Reserve Bank. They're the main owners. 
and the military industrial complex work hand in hand. So I do not see a scenario where the Federal Reserve Bank is going to oppose all these people at Davos, especially when the Fed's doing the bailouts. The, the Fed has kept the European Union, the European Central Bank, these large European banks on life support. So it is very unlikely for the Fed when they have so much control over things to voluntarily give it up. Now, well, I, I think I think Luongo's argument is basically that that it's not that they want to give it up. It's that it's the alternative is, you know, Zimbabwe style inflation, in which case the, the push in the migration towards a central bank digital currency uh, becomes more likely. And they don't want that. They'd rather defend the dollar well, and maintain their current rule. They, wanna, they don't want a lot of people waking up to the amount of inflation and taxes. So the goal for the last many decades was to stagnate tax lie. So the average person on Main Street, small business owner, a regular business person who reads the Wall Street Journal doesn't understand how much real inflation and taxes is really going on, destroying their standard of living. The sure. Fed has started to really wake up because so many people realize that the inflation rate, I mean, look at the Google searches the last two and a half years for stagflation, inflation. Uh, Shadowstat says that the real inflation rate got up according to the 1980s uh, old inflation formula, which is far more accurate. It just measured uh, the same basket of goods that it got up to 18%. So that's very high stagflation. I mean, it's come down a little bit, but right. the government inflation rate is nowhere near that. Yeah. What um, do you what do you think we're at today? 14 or so? Uh probably 15 or 16. Okay. It's it, I mean it's it's not so it's not evenly distributed throughout the economy. If you want to just talk purely Austrian school monetary inflation, I mean the amount of money supply Clint, that's been created by all these governments, it's many, many trillions. And that might not even be the real number because there's no honest accounting and audits of these central banks. So if they that's issue true. press releases and say that this is a money supply growth, here's a chart. Yeah, there's no well, accurate auditing of any of it. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Rule seventy two. It's like fifteen percent inflation means we're losing half our money every five years, or at least half our purchasing power. Um, I think that's probably a fair guess. But what's fascinating about it is that you're still you're seeing because all of the uh, you know quote unquote hard assets are themselves leveraged. It's not really the the saving grace that you would hope for the to be you know like everyone's kind of expecting because inflation is running so hot that real estate is going to be your safe haven what i think is interesting is that we still are yet to see inventory really flood the market and i, I think it's probably because a lot of people are are looking at it like they're thinking that this is the proper play because we're in an inflationary environment i'm not going to sell my home uh even though it's up a lot from when i bought it you know i'm just pretending that i'm one of these people uh, and because of that, we're just not seeing a lot of inventory. Obviously, there's always the the restrictions and things from the local level and state level um, when it comes to building. But have you recently looked at the uh, the inventory on housing? Because I, I have not checked it in the past month. I'm just curious if you if you're up to date as to has that turned around is and is inventory flooding the market. Uh, it depends in certain areas, but I mean, a lot of foreigners in other countries still want to buy U.S. real estate because it depends sure. on inflation and taxes in other countries. So if you are you live in another country, say in Latin America or South America, and you just had, say, Colombia or Brazil or Chile, where um, there was more socialists elected and they're talking about raising taxes and hurting your business and hurting your net worth, 
you're right. going to be looking at buying property in Arizona, California, uh, Florida, Miami area, because on a relative basis, your tax bill is going to be lower and you're going to want to go there. So there's still a lot of foreigners who have capital who want to come to the United States. So that will yeah. offset some um, some downward pressure on real estate. But overall, if the Fed keeps raising interest rates and keep rates there, it's going to cause a real estate crash in the not too distant future. The problem, as you highlighted, is the math problem that the U.S. Treasury and the U.S. federal government has if tax revenues start to collapse and then also interest payments on the national debt. So at higher interest rates, if the Fed, at, at, if you do the math and a lot of the national debt, which is approaching 32 trillion right now at 5% interest rates and a lot of that debt, many trillions has to be rolled over in the next 12, 18, 24 months because a lot of that debt's short term. So it's not going to be rolled over in the past like it was, Clint, at 0% or 0.25% basis point. If you have 32 trillion in national debt and you're paying below 1% interest rates, I mean, you could theoretically, this is in theory, you could keep growing the debt enormously and you could easily service the interest payments for years longer. However, when interest rates go up to four or five, 6% at 31 trillion, and you're not obviously refinancing all of that debt at once, but even like six, seven, eight, ten trillion of it at once. I mean, that's you're looking at um, the interest payments on the national debt for 2022 were over seven hundred billion dollars. That's just an in interest payments. That was more than the official military budget. Yeah, well, and they and they are probably on track to be one point five trillion in interest payments next year. I mean, it could get north of two trillion if they uh, don't. at least it. That, that's on the high end. So on the low end, if they play more games around a trillion, so base case is a trillion, but even at a trillion per year in interest payments, that's such a large chunk. The average person doesn't understand this. You have to look at the interest payments versus the tax receipts. Right. So the tax in a good year. So when asset prices are high, the economy is not in a recession or depression. The U.S. federal government's only taking in a little above two trillion. In tax is that receipts. true? Yes. I thought, I thought it was like five or six. It's only two. Oh, no, no. So if you add it up, so if you add up all the state and local government tax revenues, that number, the five or six might be true if you add it all because okay. the state and local governments are taking property taxes, sales taxes. But in a recession or depression, historically, wow. historically, Clint, what happens in a recession or depression? The first thing is, um, especially in an inflationary environment, the consumer, because all their everyday bills are going up, the consumer is not shopping as much, not mm -hmm. uh, going out to eat at restaurants, not drinking as much at bars. So first you have the sales tax revenues collapse. At the state and local office, you have sales tax collapse. You have income tax collapse. You have capital gains tax on stocks, bonds, real estate. So the, these are the long only people that are long real estate, long bonds, long stocks. They're not doing sophisticated volatility trades. They're not a hedge fund. These are the large pools of capital, like the mutual funds, the pension funds, uh, people who are buying long only investments. So those tax revenues tend to collapse. And then the last thing that collapses would be property taxes, because in um, historically what governments have tried to do is they think that they can easily just keep raising taxes because they think a lot of us are sheep and they don't want to focus on running efficient government. So instead of the government cutting back, they want to just keep raising taxes. Either they want to layer on new taxes or increase existing taxes. Unfortunately, I've had a lot of conversations with politicians, local politicians in both political parties, and you bring up government corruption and we have the Rand Paul what Festivus report coming out soon and, and then the omnibus spending bill that just came out and it's just loaded with tons of ridiculous things in there, waste, fraud, corruption, and abuse. 
So you bring this up to people in both parties and say, yeah, yeah, there's lots of corruption, but it's too hard to get rid of it all. And they're like, the easier solution is to just raise taxes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, okay, in a recession or depression, at some point you either break the economy or people stop paying or can't pay. And then that causes the government, then they don't bring in the tax revenue that they're anticipating. And then who plugs the hole at the end? It's the Federal Reserve the Bank. They, yeah. yeah, the Fed has to buy. So the Fed then, for your listeners who are not aware, the Fed has to start buying like in 2008, 2009, or 2020, the Fed has to start buying municipal bonds to bail out state and local governments. And then the Fed obviously has to keep buying U.S. Treasury. So at some point, the Fed will have to reverse what they're doing by reducing their balance sheet. Although I, I would argue from the sources, and I know people that actually drink with the DC higher up Federal Reserve people, they party and drink at the country clubs and stuff. The Federal Reserve's of real balance sheet was over 12 trillion over six months ago. It was counting all the currency swap line balance with, with other central banks. So their, their um, balance sheet numbers are going down about, I think they just started about $95 billion a month sell off. But their real balance sheet was over 12 trillion over six months ago. So the, the government numbers are a lie. Yeah, well, that doesn't surprise me at all, especially after you saw the uh, the hiring lie that happened last week where they said that they had, I don't know, a million and ended up being no new jobs, basically. There, there was there. Do you remember um, like six or uh, it had to be like seven or eight years ago under Obama? There was a whistleblower. The New York Post actually ran a story. There was someone in the Department of Labor and he said that he was threatened by like real higher ups in the White House under the Obama administration that they had to fake all the jobs report numbers. And I think only the New York Post covered it. So, I mean, this just proves that each month the U.S. is becoming more and more like the Soviet Union and the Chinese Communist Party for the economic propaganda yep. with the data, with GDP, with uh, the inflation numbers and with the jobs reports. Yeah, seems crystal clear to me. You said something earlier that uh, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into. You said that the, the Federal Reserve is owned by the big banks. Is that documented? Can we prove that? Well, it's a cartel. So if you're if you're uh, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, those uh, Goldman Sachs, those guys, you are a Federal Reserve Bank member bank. So a cartel. Sure. Bank. Those guys get extra extra borrowing costs they can change the rules they get the extra bailouts those are the ones who get all the behind the scenes stuff um the federal reserve and the military industrial complex have, have worked hand in hand for a very very long time i think that's what tom luongo is not really understanding here and a lot of it's because of my connections here in the dc metro area i mean also look at the um what Catherine austin fitz of the Solari report and dr mark skidmore have documented with tens of trillions of dollars in accounting that's missing from the Pentagon. And that money was stolen over 30, 40, 50 years, really, since the dollar became fully unbacked, became a fully uh, debt-based fiat currency without mm -hmm. any gold backing. So the, what was it, 1974? No, 1971. It was Nixon, yeah. 71. So then the Pentagon just went absolutely bonkers with the spending, and they knew that they could get away with more accounting fraud, and Wall Street was helping them. The, right. the large Wall Street banks just get the rules changed. I mean, the, the whole free market and bankruptcy with Lehman Brothers, if you talk to a lot of people at the large banks and the Federal Reserve, they would actually say that allowing Lehman Brothers to fail was a mistake. Yeah, well, so, that doesn't surprise me because it, I mean, they ended up having to do a whole bunch of bailouts. Well, they didn't have to, but they did. Um, so I'm sure from their angle, it does look like a mistake from ours. Uh, I wish they hadn't bailed out any of these sons of bitches. But um, you said that, I mean, I understand, obviously, that J.P. Morgan Chase and some of the bigger banks um, have special drawing rights, access to the Fed window, all that. But do we actually know, like, 
is there because i obviously i've read creature from jekyll island i'm sure you have as well um has there been a, a, a an exchange where different families banks became like the actual owners of the fed like is that is it public knowledge like who actually owns it because i know that the banks have drawing rights and access to the fed window but i don't know that they have so, like so ownership. i think it started off like you said with creature of the jekyll island and then i think like the large banking families decided that they were going to start moving their investments into these uh <laughs> fake charities or charitable trusts <laughs> and then having control over all these companies in big pharma military industrial complex big tech and all those. So um, actually a lot of those companies are not just in, a lot of those uh, super affluent families that have been wealthy for many generations are not just in banking anymore. They're, um, they're, most of their wealth is held privately mm -hmm. and in charitable trusts. And they own lots of these shares through charitable trusts so they don't have to report all their ownership in the companies. Yeah, well, that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, I mean, just look at how Bill Gates and uh, George Soros operate. That's kind of what they do. They use charity to control the world um well so there's it makes sense all, the makers would well too. there's also tons of charity fraud so oh, the elites yes. get away yeah the elites get away uh, my buddy charles ortel who worked on wall street for many years as a money manager and also he's considered an accounting was he's found tons of accounting fraud on a lot of different companies and he was documenting the clinton foundation accounting fraud for mm -hmm. a long time mm -hmm. he was way ahead of the curve so he was talking about this way prior to the 2016 election yeah, that actually well, got me censored on my YouTube channel for a long time. <laughs> well, and then you got, uh, you know, SBF via FTX that was basically running the same uh, game, just pretending as if it's all it's all about altruism and saving the world. Uh, I mean, all these people are just such deeply fraudulent scumbags. But um, what do you think the the next year looks like for us? I mean, uh, I've I've been expecting a recession to hit. This year, it seems as if it's kind of upon us, but it hasn't really gotten as bad as I would have expected. Do you think that this is like it's coming, or are we kind of going to just stay on the ground here? And do you mean official government? Do you mean official government numbers with a recession, or do you mean like here yeah. in reality? No, that's here, a good point. <laughs> well, let's go. I, let's go reality. Well, here in reality, I still go out to eat once or twice a week with my best friend out to restaurants, and the restaurants their shrinkflation portion. Uh, the portion oh, yeah. sizes are being drastically reduced on the menu and the prices on the menu keep going up every couple weeks or a month or two. It's extraordinary. And the, well, and the changing propaganda index or CPI doesn't cover any of this. Mm. So mm -hmm. the narrative on Wall Street is deflation, um, demand destruction. You have commodities futures contracts, which seem to go down almost every week or two, except for the gold price, which is holding up pretty well. The gold price has started to rally a little bit. It's in a higher trading range, I think. You had record amounts of central bank purchases of gold in Q3, the most since 1967. But a lot of these other commodities, whether it's base metals or energy, those things have been in a downtrend now for a while. The problem with a lot of these companies on the supply side, the producers, their costs are still rising. So if you're a lot of these commodity companies are in emerging markets, so you've had a strong dollar for the last nine, 12 months, a strong dollar. What what the average person doesn't understand is these currencies are in pairs. So if you have a strong dollar, you have weak other currency. Of course. So these other these other countries are having really bad currency problems. They're having really bad inflation. They've dealt with high electricity costs, diesel costs, energy costs. And now um, with a devalued currency, you have a lot of these workers in these other countries and they want big labor costs. So you're 
starting to see a lot of margin problems from a lot of these commodity companies because commodity prices are weak, but the costs are still rising, especially yeah. labor now. Yeah, well, that's definitely true. And uh, I think that also people are just like broken from the lockdown. So many people aren't going back to work or they're, they're refusing to go back to work. You have a bunch of strikes that are happening um, where employees are being asked to come back to the office and they're just like, no, not going to do it. Uh, this is, it's all, there's just so many variables more than I've ever tried to evaluate in my career as a money manager. I've just never seen so much disarray. It just, it's all so it's, crazy. It's the distortions from the government, the central banks, and then the bad policies. It's all yeah, these course. bad government. Well, so you have in Europe, you have just absolutely horrendous energy policies for the last 15 or 20 years. You have outright oil and natural gas drilling bans in most of their landmass areas. So they had to, so the politicians said, we, you cannot, if you're an oil and natural gas company, you cannot drill for oil and natural gas. However, you're allowed to import liquefied natural gas, which is way more expensive. So they were importing lots of liquefied natural gas or they had a pipeline in Germany set up for Nord Stream 1 and 2 and then that right. got blown up and then they blamed it on Putin even though it's a Russian pipeline and they would actually make more money selling the gas to Germany. So, I mean, it's... No, it was MI6 almost certainly in my opinion. Well, <laughs> it, uh, it's easy to just blame Putin for everything, so... <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I am not going to blame Putin. I think it was MI6 with the green light from the CIA, but... That's just my well, two cents. I, I'm just I'm just saying the Davos crowd or Dr. Klaus or oh, yeah. the, the military industrial complex here in the United States. It's just easy to they're the main enemy right now is Putin. Well, I, yeah, no, I'm aware, but it's just like all incentives go the opposite direction. It's like why the fuck would Putin blow up his you know his big money maker? It's just it's ridiculous. Um, that actually brings me to the, my next question, and I I didn't you know present this to you as a topic that I'd like to cover, but I just can't get it out of my, my mind. Did you see Zelensky holding the Ukrainian flag in, in front of the house or in the congressional room last night? Uh, I saw video clips of it, but honestly, it just reminded me with both political parties giving a standing ovation and clapping. It reminded me of the Hunger Games. <laughs> well, yeah, it did. It, it did was, that too. It, it was the whole thing was staged. I mean, they didn't have the exorbitant costumes or the weird um, BDSM <laughs> stuff out in public, like right. the Hunger Games. But um, both political parties just standing there and clapping like seals, while um, they're just talking about, oh, we need to send more money to Ukraine for relief. And then it was going to get uh, stolen or laundered or wasted. And the military industrial complex is getting all these unbidded contracts or they get to sell all their old um, planes, tanks, guns, bombs for uh, for large profits to right. the Ukrainian government. What, what, what your, well, your listeners are libertarians, so they're not regular people. So they, they understand how the system works is that when these countries get relief, say Ukraine, when they when you see on a Friday at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. they get a press release for 10 billion or 20 billion dollars, what they might not understand is that the lobbyists here in DC, the military industrial complex, engineered most of that and both political parties signed off and you have Republicans and Democrats on board with this. And then th that relief dollars, uh, the politicians in that other country are stealing a lot of that money. And then the money that's not stolen by the higher ups in that other country it's being recycled back here to the U.S. for Boeing, Raytheon, um, those military industrial complex companies oh, to yeah. sell old planes, tanks, equipment for. So it's well, it's not, uh, not just that, but now we now we know that they also uh, managed to find a, a cutout through FTX to be able to fund Democratic uh, politicians' campaigns too. Pretty pretty creative shit. I got to give them credit. They are they are stepping up their fraudulence. Um, but 
just to give my two cents on it, I, I really, I've never had a sensation that concerning and not because I'm like some hard patriot that's like, Oh, only the American flag should be flown in our capital. Like I'm just not one of those guys, but I will say this, the reason it, it concerns me so much and genuinely it sent chills down my spine is because one, I don't believe that's ever occurred before. And two, this is a foreign nation that is at war with a nuclear power. In fact, the, the greatest nuclear arsenal on earth, probably bigger and better than the United States. It struck me as such overt propaganda that, that both we have bipartisan support from our quote unquote representatives that are more than prepared to lead us into world war three. And cause if you go to war with Russia, it's not going to just be fucking, you know, us versus Russia. It's a world war at that point. I'm, I'm certain of it. So did you have well, any feeling of that? Can you talk me off the, off the cliff here? I don't know if we're going to have a full world war three. I mean, there's been economic warfare and sanctions and market manipulation with Chinese government, the U S going on for, years now and it's only increased so there's a lot of financial warfare behind the scenes and market manipulations if you see a commodity price go up or down for no reason it could be because there's been a country buying or market manipulation by an entire country or central bank i mean there's that type of ridiculous distortions now inside our markets right. um but i think that's a good point what you brought up with ukraine and the flag displaying because normally things are more covert here in dc mm -hmm. so there's about eight or nine governments so you have you have iran qatar saudi arabia israel china um let's see here i think russia ukraine and there might uh, well iran had john Kerry on the payroll for a while I'm trying to think there's there's at least seven or eight major governments that spend insane many billions of lobbying dollars to buy mm -hmm. politicians from both political parties but they it's way more covert and behind the scenes so like a lot of people aren't aware that qatar funds a lot of the brookings institute and the brookings institute funds a lot of policies mm -hmm. and that a lot of these opec countries to try to force oil prices higher for years were actually funding a lot of these esg and green development so there wouldn't be as much oil oil and natural gas supply brought online so there Wait, was a which, lot. which country was that a lot of the opec so for years you had russia saudi arabia a lot of these opec countries were actually funding green they were funding like um the lobbies here in dc to promote green energy and energy spending so the u.s wouldn't approve as much oil and natural gas so it would cause prices to go higher Incredible. but now the problem is there's not well that was going on for years behind the scenes no, that's fucking brilliant, though. I love it. I mean, it, it's ruining the world, but uh, you gotta, you gotta applaud G shit when you see it. That is a gangster ass move to just be like, we're gonna, yeah. we're gonna well, buy the politicians so that they don't produce enough oils so that our our price. Well, stays also, and they're gonna waste money then on on electric vehicles and wind and solar, and then there's not gonna be as much oil and natural gas supply, and that's gonna cause no. a higher price for. Well, and also if we go to war with these sons of bitches and they don't have enough oil to really fight, well, that's an issue. I, I think that's kind of the position that Russia's in right now where they have, you know, the most tapped probably oil reserves of any, well, other than the Middle East. Um, it's, it's weird because as we all know, America has an enormous supply of oil if we want to go and get it, but we have politicians that don't work on our behalf. So they refuse to go and allow us to get it. Uh, it does... Uh, it does strike me though. I'm just being straight with you, man. Like 
the the fact that they would do that, like just consider for a second the existential threat that Russia has on their hands if they lose a war on their border to a significantly weaker and smaller nation. That's just not a path that I think Putin's willing to accept. I really don't think he is. So you have to believe that he's going to see this thing to its co inevitable completion. And that's going to be the complete, in my opinion, the complete conquest and domination of Ukraine. Uh, lots of innocent people are going to die and lots of soldiers are going to die. And I consider most of them innocent too. And if that's the case, I, I'm just curious if our, if our political class has the, the will given what they just demonstrated last night of like, we are unified, like the bipartisan, none of these motherfuckers support each other on anything, you know, publicly, but that, that had damn near unanimous well, bipartisan support. It was, it was scary. There actually is one thing that both political parties agree on. Dr. Ron Paul's talked about this, and this is why he didn't run as a libertarian party candidate, third party candidate. He's talked about this. He couldn't even get on the ballot. So if he said if he would have ran as a third-party libertarian candidate, it would have been so difficult just to get on the ballot in many states and other uh, local jurisdictions. Yeah, well, so, we've, um, we've remedied that, we've remedied that recently. But I, I know I know where you're going with this. They are bipartisan. Look, I, behind the scenes, they do a lot of shit together. But I'm just saying publicly, they don't do anything together. And that was that was almost well. All of if them. the if the military, yeah, I mean, yeah, publicly, well, both both political parties are pro military industrial complex for the most part. I mean, like the Democrats used to be anti war decades ago, but that changed a long time ago. I mean, now you have CNN; they have a studio in the Pentagon along with Fox News. Right. Yeah. Well, and even the Squad has basically become warmongers. I mean, they were all always probably, but um, yeah, now you just have like the Freedom Caucus, and that's about it. That is even giving verbal or vocal uh, opposition to the ever-increasing threat of World War III. It's just, it's just wild to me because like we're facing basically the, the potential end of the everything bubble while we also have a brewing conflict with China and Russia, the two biggest nuclear powers. It's like, what the fuck are we doing? So the, the average person doesn't understand this. And if you live in the DC metro area, you will, if you live here for a prolonged period of time, most of the jobs directly and indirectly are tied to the military industrial complex here in DC if you don't work for the federal government. right? So if you work at a consulting company, which are enormous, they're similar to investment banks in terms of the hours. So if you work at an Accenture or a Booz Allen Hamilton or Deloitte here, their largest clients are the Pentagon and the military industrial complex company. So the <laughs> average course. person does not understand understand how much power control oh, money yeah. influence that the military industrial complex has here in the dc metro area it is immense yeah well it's just the reason i bring it up though is like i guess i'm still blue pill to some extent just believing that there has to be some sense of like we don't want to have a global depression and world war three simultaneously and like even from the political class, you would think they'd be like, yeah, well, that's just for our own benefit of like maintaining our power. Like, that's not a great idea. It's going to end up with us, you know, seeing the door eventually. Um, but they don't seem to they don't seem to have that mentality. It just seems like like the vultures, the vultures are on the carcass of the United States and they are just going to lunch. Well, actually, it's the other, if you want to talk about government debt and the map from coming as bad as it is for the U.S. government, it's even worse for these other countries because they had, they didn't sure. have the, the dollar as a world reserve currency. Their economy is not in as good a shape as the U.S. And over the last two and a half years, they printed many, many trillions as well. And these other central banks bought their government bonds. They monetized debt. Now their currencies are super weak and they have a really bad inflation problem. 
and you're seeing with the elections in these other countries, governments, they're not being overthrown, but you're seeing big changes and the people are starting to revolt with the yep. inflation and the taxes. Yep. So uh, these other countries are going to have to deal with their math problems. We're looking in the next 12, 18, 24 months at wide scale government debt problems. It looks like Japan has hit the wall before the United States, Japan for 30 years, they were able to defy gravity. Right. And they did and not MMT have a, worked for a little while. <laughs> well, they they all they were running large trade surpluses. They were sure. able to export a lot of their inflation through games that their central bank was playing with the yen carry trade and other types of things. And their citizens bought a lot of Japanese government bonds and their currency did not have problems like a lot of people were predicting. So they're able to cap interest rates, but they seem to have finally hit a wall because of uh, a lot of it's because of energy, because of the energy mm. problems. So many bad government policies all over the globe with lack of investment in oil and natural gas. You had uh, China, Germany, Japan have to import insane amounts of oil and natural gas for electricity. So you're telling me that reality hit them in the face. Yeah. I mean, it's not surprising at all if you're not going to produce like the one good that the whole world desperately needs. It's eventually, and, and then you simultaneously keep interest rates artificially low and you print a shit ton of money. Uh, yeah, you're going to have problems eventually. And uh, and it seems like America, as opposed to looking at Japan and going like, hey, that was a stupid ass idea. They're like, let's do it too, because we're the reserve currency and we could probably do it a lot longer than them. And they're right. They probably can do it a lot longer than them. But I don't think that given that, you know, you have so much... Um, upheaval in the geopolitical sphere and if you if you start to see people actually rising up because of the inflationary pressures and shortages and food costs and everything that we have seen in many many nations over the past couple of years uh i think that that the political class in those countries will start to look for uh external enemies to blame and that's where i could see the potential of these countries kind of saying hey this isn't our doing even though i'm sure they play their part um but the great Satan, America, and their Fauci, the lockdowns, COVID, Wuhan, da 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 da. Like I oh, could, yeah, I it's, could... easy to, it's easy to blame foreigners. Yeah, I agree. So if you're yeah. if you're a politician in another country, the easiest thing, the textbook case throughout history is xenophobia. Blame foreigners. So if there's a right. financial crisis, foreigners. If the government screws up something in the economy, or the government has a financial crisis, blame foreigners. Right. But, what but, it, those but in this case, in this case, it's not even that much of a lie. It's kind of true. Well, the, the they borrowed a lot of dollar denominated debt. No one, no one put a gun to their head and told them that they had to borrow. It. So there was desperation. Right. But, the, but other... the interest rate hikes. Uh, I mean, if you have if you hold rates down at a quarter point for a decade and then all of a sudden you, you pop it to five, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's like the, it's it's easy. I, yeah, you're I, right. I think it. I think still... it was greed. I think it was greed for a lot of these um, foreign governments and foreign corporations because they saw that it was cheaper in the short term to borrow dollar denominated debt. And they bet, they bet that it would buy them some time. But the problem is every time the Fed raises interest rates, keeps raising interest rates and the dollar gets stronger, it's a global margin call. And so in 2021, and I was talking about this publicly in a lot of interviews and in tweets, that these things work in a cycle with dollar-denominated debt. So when the dollar was weak in 2021, you had people like David Hunter and Peter Schiff saying, this is it, this is it, the dollar's finally going to collapse, or the dollar is heading much, much lower. Right. But you started to see all these foreign governments and foreign corporations borrow more dollars. And it's a cycle. When you borrow more dollars, you need more dollars to pay them back 
pay back the dollar denominated debt or service the debt. So the the whole system is just corrupt and wasteful. So that that absorbs and, that absorbs yeah. dollars from the the system that basically decreases inflation. Well, the dollars are no, because the dollars are created out of thin air. So, um, mm. if uh, have you studied the history of the euro dollar market? So, the euro dollar market, there's a good series by Jeff Snyder. I don't agree with everything Jeff says, by the way. So, but with his euro dollar university and the history of it is is a good series on it talking about how like European banks, without the Federal Reserve's approval, European banks set up a foreign offshore dollar creation market and started creating dollars out of thin air mm. back in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And then by the time it hit like the, the 80s or 90s, it was just enormous. It was many trillions. Mm. So they literally just, these foreign banks, and then the US banks saw what the European banks were doing and they set up subsidiaries in Europe and they started creating trillions of dollars out of thin air. And now you have, the offshore euro dollar market, which started in Europe, but it's all over the world now, and it's tens of trillions in size. That was a large chunk of the recent report that your listeners probably saw with the Bank of International Settlements, commenting how there's between, there's different um, estimates, between 65 trillion and 80 trillion of offshore dollar denominated debt, along with these exotic types of forwards and swaps. And a lot of those, uh, Kyle Bass, hedge fund manager Kyle Bass, has talked about for the last four or five years, uh, tens of trillions of those are in the Chinese banking system and are tied to um, their real estate bubble. Oh my God. Well, that's and not had- gonna end well. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it. let me present two different pathways here. So you're. it sounds to me like you're saying, once again, the US is the best of the bunch. It's the, it's the Titanic, but there's a whole bunch of ships that are already taking on water. Um, is that a fair assessment of what you're saying? Well, Kyle Bass has said it best that the U.S. is probably being saved for last. So you have these other countries that don't have dollars, they need dollars, and then in a recession or depression, they can't service their dollar denominated debt, they have inflation problems in their domestic economy, they have their their domestic currency, their local currencies having problems. Um, So in the short term, you're going to probably, they're the dollar and the treasuries will probably be a quote unquote safe haven, but that's not long-term. So a couple of years from now, I mean, things can switch because of all the rules changes and all these Keynesian lever pulling and intervention by governments and central banks and rules changes and goalposts moving. We have, I would say more asset price volatility in all these asset classes because these central banks for now are still raising interest rates. It's not just the Fed, but mm-hmm. they're gonna hit the wall soon because they can't service their debt. Their debt keeps growing, they can't service it. And then they have currency problems and then their pension funds all have these dumb hedge fund trades on. And these pension funds are, have, are uh, the United Kingdom had a blowout, they had a, a blowout, they had a bailout. Mm. Their, the, the, the Bank of England is doing absolutely insane things. They did a combination, they were still raising interest rates and they were buying government bonds and they were bailing out their pension funds. Well, they didn't bail out their pension funds by themselves. There was a 600 billion secret bailout by the Federal Reserve Bank <laughs> Jesus for Christ. English pension funds. Yeah. So is the, I mean, I agree with you that they're going to hit the wall if if they, I mean, is there a chance that all of the nations are like in agreement that they're going to all do the same shit, that they're going to basically hike rates, but then buy their well, own we're, bonds? We're approaching um, from a financial history perspective, we're approaching the need for a new system. So either a, a new bread and woods type of system or historically what happens at the end of a world war. So at the end of World War One or at the end of World War Two, where these governments, because they were fighting, quote unquote, fighting the pandemic, right? So they, 
They, um, a lot of people stayed home. They bailed out businesses. They handed out stimmy checks. The money supply growth went enormously. Government debts exploded. But a lot, besides the Federal Reserve Bank, a lot of these other, and the Federal Reserve Bank was the first one raising interest rates and they're doing it the fastest. These other countries are hitting limits faster mm. than the Fed mm. is because the dollar is the world reserve currency. But the problem is if the dollar gets too strong, that'll collapse everything. You're going to have, it's a, as I said earlier, it's a margin call on the global economy, a strong right. dollar. So yeah. the Fed raising interest rates makes the dollar stronger. It creates a vicious cycle with all this dollar denominated debt outstanding. And then you see even more defaults and the Fed yeah. needs to do even more balance. So it's just a, the whole system is a mess of yeah. leverage, dollar denominated debt, too much debt and credit and fiat well, currencies. That, that's kind of why my read of it is that the, the derivatives market will blow up in the next couple of years, because I just think that what you're describing Obviously, if you have defaults from many nations around the globe, well, because of what you've already described also with how these hedge funds and everybody has money that's basically lent offshore, one of these countries goes down. Okay, maybe you can paper that over. Five or six of these countries go down. All of a sudden, it doesn't really look plausible that they can just turn up the printing press and turn down interest rates and everything will go back to hunky-dory. Uh, I would imagine yeah, that we could... We could see you a probably significant... need a new system. Historically, that's when they implement a new system. Yeah, and that that's why most in my camp believe that the central bank digital currency is the intended new system. Are, are you of the opinion that that's... I think we've talked about it before, but I forget what your feedback was on it. Yeah, so Dr. Klaus of the World... E yes, um, the short answer is yes, but Dr. <laughs> Klaus of the World Economic Forum, he's talked about this. He's, he's actually said that the Chinese government is doing a good job with everything, and in China... They're kind of the test model, the breeding ground for everything. So there's a social credit score they've yeah. started implementing before everyone else um, uh, bans on cash. So you have to scan a QR code on your smartphone to pay in cash, which is ridiculous. Yeah. And then they have a crypto yuan. And uh, if you make bad social media posts, so here in the United States, we've really just seen it with Edward Snowden, Kanye, select groups that were pro-Trump, I guess, where uh, banks like shut off their bank accounts, or uh, now there's like PayPal, well, PayPal was talking about a fine, but you haven't seen necessarily outright shutdowns of business. You see people posting like negative reviews on someone's Yelp, right? If they, if they say a bad comment, but there's not been wide scale, at least not yet, where they've had like full shutdowns of people's bank accounts and credit cards, or you can't go buy food or you can't right. pay your bills. So that hasn't happened yet, but it seems that um, that's the China model. And the World Economic Forum seems in favor of, which is the Davos crowd. You're right. And many many of and then, the Western politicians are, are of that ilk. Yeah. So central bank currencies in a cashless society, it is and you have a government centralized database where every transact economic transaction with your bank or credit card or debit card is tracked and taxed. Mm -hmm. The government could easily put a new tax on. Or if you put a so bad social media post that the government doesn't like, they can shut off your bank accounts. They can either right. fine you, they can dock your social credit score, or they can start shutting off your bank accounts or credit cards immediately. Yeah. Well, and, and my expectation is that Agenda 2030, that is the timeline, that it's probably eight years from now that they expect to have the C CBDC rolled out. I'm just not sure that we don't have an implosion economically prior. I think we will. Oh, um, I agree. Uh, okay. I, I don't even know if we have two years, two or three. The math just doesn't add up at this point. I mean, we're starting to see... Yep. Immense problem. Camp. 
we're, we're seeing immense problems in China, immense problems in the European Union with energy problems and other problems. I mean, their banks, the, the banks are starting to show a lot of weakness, especially they're going to have to do some really serious uh, behind the scenes bailouts and other games for Credit Suisse because they can't sell. They, uh, the historic games that they played to save Deutsche Bank after 2008, 2009 was um, they would do reverse stock splits and then they would sell billions of dollars of shares of Deutsche Bank then again to sucker pension funds. But I don't know if the pension funds can afford to buy those shares now if they were going to do the same games with Credit Suisse. So mm -hmm. they're going to have to do something. Credit Suisse is below $5 a share. And if it stays below $5 a share for another couple months, there's going to be forced selling according to bylaws for these uh, pension funds and mutual yeah. funds that were holding the stock. And yeah, they, got, they got a reverse split then, right? Well, or, or the or the Swiss National Bank nationalizes it. So there's been rumors now for the last couple of months that the, the Swiss Central Bank, the Swiss National Bank would force a, mer a nationalization and a merger, some type of weird merger with the other large Swiss bank, UBS. And then maybe they could take some of the bad assets because it's been going around for the last month that... Uh, Credit Suisse has tens of billions of dollars in these CLOs, collateralized loan obligations. And these are a type of derivatives right. where the collateral is even worse than junk bonds. So they were <laughs> holding this, they were holding these really bad um, corporate debt that was worse than junk bonds. And awesome. they, they couldn't, well, they couldn't, they were making these things and they were selling them as an income product to retail investors and large pension funds, but they kept making them and they couldn't offload all of them when the game of musical chairs yeah, or yeah, the game yeah. of hot potato ended. So they got well, stuck for too much. That's the same shit that happened with Fannie and Freddie and, and exactly. the, uh, exactly. yeah, the derivatives back then with the real estate market. Well, that's not at all surprising. All right, well, this is the interesting question then because you and I are both in agreement that the CBDC is the next phase. And we're also both in agreement that the recession slash mega super end of everything depression is probably two or three years away max that's my my opinion at least and i don't think that they'll have the cbdc's ready for for prime time then i really don't so if that's the case how do they how do they kick the can for five years to get the technology to a point of being ready or or are they closer to being ready with central bank digital currencies than i'm giving them credit for i don't think they're ready yet they're not yeah. doing cross-border trade settlement. So they're not able, yeah. these central bank digital currencies are not able to handle tens of billions of dollars in cross-border trade settlement per day. So how do they buy themselves five years, man? Well, historically, what governments have done is they, they need to devalue the currencies. Right. So, they, so they, that's, that's when they but, reverse interest rates and they start to print again. The problem now is so many people are attuned to stagflation and inflation. More people are awake and paying attention that they're seeing their bills uh, go up. All these different bills, whether it's insurance or rent, healthcare insurance, all these things are going up, even though energy prices are temporarily going down. But I don't think the energy price is going down that much. That's not going to last that long because you didn't see a lot of new supply come online. Mm -hmm. Well, because so you of saw the stupid fucking green plan that everyone's running on. Well, also the governments in a lot of these countries, instead of making it easier for oil and natural gas companies at higher prices to bring new supply online, which would be a smarter long-term solution, instead what they've done is threaten windfall profits, taxes, they've tried to right. put price. So this is economics 101. If you try to put a price cap failing. on something, <laughs> oh, it's going to create a shortage then. If you try to put a price cap on something saying you can't charge this price for gasoline or diesel or electricity, of course, then the companies are going to say, well, my costs are rising. I'm not going to sell it then. They're going to cut back. And they're not going to produce it then either. And and that's what we're what we're witnessing. It's just so it's so crazy. But I mean, this is 
this is what gives more credence to the the statement of the Great Reset um, or Building Back Better because it's just like, man, that it looks as if that's that's really what they're intending is for us to reset. And so, if they if they just assume we're right for a second, say that that two years from now or maybe a year, I think it's going to happen like middle to late next year, personally, but. Um, say that they hit the wall and that you start to see some countries that are defaulting and shit like that. They have to reverse course. They, they start to lower interest rates. Maybe they don't, they don't print, but they just lower interest rates to try and juice the economy. Um, is that enough? Clint, they will have to print. The government will have to buy U.S. treasuries if tax revenues, as we talked about um, many minutes ago. So if you see state and local government tax revenues for sales tax, income tax, property taxes, if those collapse, they will have to reverse course like in 2008, 2009, mm -hmm. and in 2020, and they will have to buy municipal bonds. It really depends on asset prices and how well the economy is doing. Because if tax revenues collapse, the Fed is the the Fed is going to have to plug the hole. The right. Fed is going to have to bail out the state and local governments, the federal government. The Fed is going to have to buy treasuries because the country's that are normally buying treasuries that recycle their trade surpluses are they're not running trade surpluses yeah and they're so not they can't. and they're, and they're actually selling their u.s treasuries so japan sold 81 billion dollars of their u.s treasuries which is a record amount in a single month because they needed the cash so japan's right. not running large trade surpluses they don't have the extra ammo to go and buy more u.s treasuries yeah, uh, Germany's, china's probably on that same track or Germany, yeah. Well, well, and these those the countries that were buying those treasuries in the past were all the major manufacturing powerhouses, and then they would take their trade surpluses, they would take their um, foreign exchange reserves that they're running from large trade surpluses because their manufacturing was good, and then recycle those into U.S. treasuries, and that's not happening now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so the large buyers of U.S. treasuries, the main source of demand for U.S. treasuries for foreign demand, so right. Japan, Germany, China are not buyers anymore. Yeah, exactly. So that means we become Japan, where, where our central bank starts to purchase an immense amount of our treasuries. Is that fair? Well, we need to, we need to audit the Fed, and well, I'd love to end the Fed, but first we need to audit the Fed again because if the Fed's balance sheet, if they're going to start buying hundreds of billions of dollars again in treasuries, and they're going to lie about their balance sheet, this is going to have an effect on the purchasing power of the dollar. Then, well, yeah, other. Certainly would, but the the issue is, if if we're right, which I think we are, obviously, um, there there's no way in hell. I mean, they would JFK your ass if you got even close to being able to audit to see what's going on behind the scenes, because this is this is their entire survival, you know, from their perspective. So I just don't. I don't think we're going to get an audit. I don't. I honestly don't. Um, let's just assume for a second that they find a way to de delay the day of reckoning, reckoning until 2030, and that's when the, the reset is. That's when the transition to CBDCs are. What is your expectation as to the best investment asset? If you were purchasing something today, and I'm not saying a particular company or any or any particular individual asset, but like what category of assets do you think will weather this best? Because I, I, I really don't know. So if you're here in the United States and you can get if the Fed lowers interest rates down enormously again, and you can lock in a 30-year mortgage at a low fixed rate, it's going to get inflated away. Now, at the, at the current interest rates, that's not a good investment right now. That's right. not smart. So, it, it's a, yeah. So, if you can lock in a low 30-year fixed rate mortgage when interest rates start heading back down towards zero interest rate policy, then 
that might be a good idea. Although if the economy is getting worse, I don't know who's going to be able to afford rent because we're seeing the data that a lot of people ages 18 to 41 are moving back in with their parents because they can't afford the rent increases or they're out of jobs now. True, true. But there's just no, there's also no inventory though. It's such a, it's such a bizarre economy. There's really not enough inventory to, to drive well, you, prices down. You also have foreigners, Clint, in all these countries, whether it's I, Peru, I Chile, Colombia, they all want to come to the United States and buy here. I, I hear it all the time lately yep. that people still want to, they still view the United States on a relative basis as better and they want a kind of a bug out area. They want to go buy property here in the United States. So well, if you look at this, if you look at the Southern border, we've got millions of people flooding it every single year uh, for recently. So it's like, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's absorbing so, a, a huge amount of the inventory. So real, real estate would, would depend then on interest rates. And if here in the United States, you could lock in a 30 year fixed rate, because in other countries you can't lock in. So in Canada, many other countries, you can't get a 30 year fixed rate mortgage at a low interest rate. Oh, I didn't know but that. Th Interesting. Yeah, in Can so Canada actually things are starting their their real estate bubbles popping now, and in the Greater Toronto area, prices I think in the last twelve months are already down about thirty percent. Yeah, they're fucked then because I I mean the banking system because it's so uh, intertwined globally, I think that'll probably be one of the one of the many first dominoes, if you will, that starts to trigger this thing. So it sounds as if you're saying you think that well, real estate, if if we get a pullback, say in the next 12 to 18 months, and you're able to buy at a low low locked rate, that's probably a good play. And anything else? Well, it depends in that local area if there's job growth. So our company is moving sure. there and creating jobs too. So that real estate. So you mean red states? Of, hmm? <laughs> so you mean red states? Well, that's part of it for real estate. But historically, um, because of the lack of investment on a lot of these commodities, and not all commodities are the same, uh, different commodities have different supply and demand fundamentals. I, I'm more bearish on base metals. Mm. Um, so like uh, steel, iron ore, uh, I think copper has a good long-term future, but in the short term, it could be sideways to down, but long-term copper has a bright future because of the grades. I mean, the cost to pull copper out of the ground and the grades are so low at this point and they're using so much diesel and electricity to mine like very, very low grade copper. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of these commodities, so food, energy, fertilizer, you have a ton of fertilizer plants in Europe, the United Kingdom that are shut down because natural mm -hmm. gas prices are so high. So yes, in the short term, that has created less demand for natural gas out of Europe because there's the, they're not, a lot of, a lot of fertilizer, uh, excuse me, a lot of natural gas is used to make fertilizer. So that's less demand for natural gas in the short term, but long-term I'm still very, very bullish natural gas. And if you think there's gonna be a good buying opportunity in the next couple of quarters, two, three, four quarters for oil and natural gas. So I think they have bright futures. So regular old conventional energy, long-term, I think nuclear power is a very good solution. So if you're Japan, you're Germany, you're China, and all of your manufacturing, all your uh, factories, manufacturing base has had to deal with sky-high electricity prices because of the rise in coal prices, the rise in natural gas or liquefied natural gas imports, or, you're, or maybe you're even a diesel generator, the cost of diesel was up enormously you're gonna start to look, and this is a problem with nuclear, it's not a short-term solution because it takes years to build a new nuclear power plant, especially right. here in Western countries, although China can crank them out at a fast pace, but long-term that should, the the most energy dense source of power, the most Uranium. reliable for cheap electricity, it will is nuclear power, but I'm, I'm a big fan of the next generation of new nuclear power, it's not investable right now. 
So the smaller nuclear reactors, the modular ones, like the liquid fluoride molten salt thermoreactor, reactor, it's not an investable trend right now. But so it's not it's not publicly traded. Is that what you mean? Well, I there there's been large electrical utility companies here in the United States that have actually gone to the Department of Energy and said they want to build a test plant for a liquid fluoride molten salt thermoreactor. reactor. And the Department of Energy has basically said all, all the scientists at the top. The ones, uh, most of them, unfortunately, are anti-nuclear, and the ones who are pro-nuclear are not fans of the next generation nuclear power technology. And they've even told these um, large electrical utility companies that are publicly traded and their market caps are tens of billions, they've told the lobbyists to go fuck themselves. <laughs> so um, this is unfortunate that we don't have free markets and capitalism with a lot of government energy policy, and it's just created a lot of distortions. Yeah, well, it's just yet yet another yeah, industry so, that's, so, that's captured. So food, so short-term commodity prices, commodity futures contracts could go down, but there's been a lack of investment still. Even though we had high commodity prices, there wasn't new supply that came online. And in the short term, all the people on Wall Street are talking demand destruction, demand destruction, demand destruction. Well, you also have supply that's going to come offline. You have the commodities producers. A lot of them are dealing in emerging markets, um, which is where a lot of these commodities are produced, especially mining and oil and natural gas. They're dealing with higher costs. Mm -hmm. So that's eventually going to mean new higher price floors, and then there's a lack of supply that's coming online. Okay, so that'll also add to price, most likely. Well, and well, and and over in terms of the asset classes that actually do well with inflation, it's commodities. So over different cycles, if you go back and look at the asset classes that perform well in currency devaluations and inflation or stagflation, commodities tend to perform well. So in the '70s, they still performed well. Until uh, the gold price was manipulated and the Hunt brothers got screwed over, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, 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 right. Fair, fair counter. Um, all right, so uh, we'll get out of here on this because I know my audience will kill me if I don't ask. Uh, what's your expectation for Bitcoin? Say 2030, do you think that we're looking at, at crazy hype prices or or is there, what are, what are the odds that it gets defeated somehow by central banks or the government or whatever? Well, there's a lot of Bitcoiners that are buying Trezor, that have bought Trezors and Ledgers and took them off uh, cold storage. Right. So that was would have been the smart play uh, 12 months ago or 18 months ago to, to take it off. If you're a long-term holder, uh, to take it off one of these exchanges, as people like Trace Meyer and others were warning. Um, I look at sentiment. So I have not seen a lot of sentiment online saying, I'll never buy Bitcoin again. I hate it. I've sold all my crypto. I haven't seen a lot of those posts yeah. yet. So I don't think... We we're haven't seen the, the bottom. bottom. <laughs> yeah, so I don't, I don't think we're at the bottom. Actually, actually, the funny thing, Clint, I see posts like that. Tons of them. I get messages. Tons of them from people every day. I'll never buy gold again. I'll never buy silver again. I'm selling all my gold. I'm selling all my silver. I'm selling all my gold stocks. I see this every day for the last six months. So yeah. I was like, oh, the bottom is soon then, because yeah. I was just watching the producers, the mining companies, and their costs are rising, and they're talking about, well, we're not going to bring on new supply. So I, I think in 2023, we're going to see good performance from gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. I, I don't know if we're going to see uh, 3,000 gold in the short term, but um, I think we'll see over the next uh, probably under 24 months, we'll see gold at 2,500, give or That's take. Nice. Uh, so do you think well, that... Well, the, uh, cost, the costs are up a lot. So yeah. if, you, if you are a uh, open pit miner and you're mining very low-grade gold and copper, I put out a report for my paying customers, patrons, uh, going back through Newmont Mining, their costs from uh, 18 months ago, and showing in their annual report what their costs were. Their costs 
for a lot of their mines were around $1,000 an ounce in 2021. So that at the end of 2020 in their 2021 uh, first quarter, and now their costs are up for a lot of their um, their low grade because Newmont runs a lot of really enormous open pit, low grade uh, copper and gold mines that you, that have these giant earth mover trucks that move tons of rock that's not economic to a large crushing pit. So they use a ton of diesel 24-7, 365 and a ton of electricity. Their costs for their mines were up to $1,500. So their costs went from $1,000 an ounce to fifteen hundred at a lot of, at over half of their mines in under two years, wow. so that shows that how much the energy prices and electricity prices and now labor costs are starting to go up. So you have some um, downward cost pressure now for some diesel prices. They're starting to come down a little bit, but now labor costs are going to start to go up. So that'll and be these, good for they, the miners then moving forward. This will put so in the short term, the cost rising and the profit margins contracting doesn't put a bottom in, but over a couple quarters, say under a year, it puts a bottom in because then all, because you get to the point where, and I've had email discussions with Jim Rogers, the famous investor about this, because he's Mr. Commodity. He put out a book called Hot Commodities many years ago. And I was asking him about past commodities, bull market cycles, where they go into a bear market. and And I asked him like, how long do the metals prices stay below production costs for a lot of the miners? And he was like a couple quarters at most. Otherwise, a ton of supply comes offline, the miners go bankrupt, and then there's people who still have demand for the commodity and there's no supply. Exactly. In which case, the asset will skyrocket. Well, I have uh, I have Newmont and Barrick are like the only two stocks that I still own. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that you have a bullish outlook over the next two to three years because I'm a long-term holder. It's just a hedge. You oh. know, I just let it sit there. Um, so that'll be interesting well, to Clint- see. Clint, if you're if you're a patron, you should know that for your core holdings, you should own the royalty companies first, because then you don't have to worry about the production costs. So if you own like a, a Whedon Precious Metals, a Franco Nevada, a Royal Gold, uh, a Cisco Gold Royalty, or a Sandstorm Gold, you're still looking at a thousand dollar an ounce profit margins now, and those companies are still paying dividends. So well, they generate fucked up. Well, they don't mind them. Yeah, they don't <laughs> mind. They don't mind. So this is this is the the difference between um you're not going to get bargains with a lot of those companies. So the share price may be down, but you're not going to get like a, a PE ratio below 10 for mm-hmm, a lot of the mm-hmm. for a Franklin Nevada. You're never going to get a PE ratio for Franklin Nevada probably below 10. But you're going to get a quality company that has over 150 royalties and streams throwing off cash flow at very high profit margins. So those companies still have over $1,000 an ounce profit margins. Wow. Whereas um, a mining company, you have to worry about labor costs and diesel costs and electricity costs. And if you build a mine in the wrong country, the government could threaten to seize the mine. So. Interesting. Well, uh, uh, just to give my two cents. I, I'm still I'm still a believer in uh, in Bitcoin. I, I honestly think that it'll be six figures uh, by by the Great Reset 2030. Um, I'd be I'd be very surprised if it weren't. And if it isn't, it'll be because it was replaced with a better cryptocurrency that is, uh, you know, decentralized and privately traded and not not a CBDC. That's that's so, my expectation. What do you think? So in so in the short term, I think Bitcoin could go lower to sideways. Agreed. Um, two, three, four or five years from now, it needs to work through sentiment wise people that are saying they'll never own it again. It needs the Clint, if I don't know if you pay attention to what the hedge fund managers say, but there's tons of accounting fraud with with pretty much all decentralized Bitcoin exchanges. You have the oh, yeah. red, you have the red flags at Tether, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust has a lot of red red flags. All those problems need to be worked through. And that's 
while they're still working through those red flags and those problems and the short sellers on Wall Street are attacking those companies and justifiably so. If there's fraud there, there's yeah. accounting fraud there. They should you're be. not going to see, well, you're not going to see a lot of these people arrested, unfortunately. Yeah. So yeah. the short sellers are going to have to do the work that the regulator should. Right. And and that's good. That's actually a healthy market activity. Um, it's not it's not healthy that there's so much fraud, but you know that's well, part of the game. It's, yeah, it's not healthy if you bought Bitcoin at sixty thousand or sixty nine thousand, no, and no, you no. were and you were predicting that it was going to go to one hundred fifty or two hundred thousand in twelve months. Of course, of course. I, I'm I'm simply referencing the the broader market. It's healthy yeah. when fraud is sussed out and dealt oh, yeah, with, I agree. these people, oh, hundred percent, you know, go under. So I, I think that's oh, there's, when you'll there's fraud everywhere. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So Silicon Valley and Wall Street do so much fraud, and they've gotten away with it for so long. So so say say it takes two to four years for us to get through that period, and then you also have the lowering of interest rates, the re reengaging or returning up of the printing press. I think that you could see a massive, massive bull run, as especially as a central bank digital currency becomes less of a fringe theory and more of a like it's only a matter of time. It's coming because we feel that way, but the you know the normal person doesn't feel that way yet. Um, so I'm guessing five, six years. I think that 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 could be a a real, probably the best performing asset. In, you know, at some point in that in that period. Uh, well, will be I, I, this this is a danger. I, I want to put a warning out for this. This is a dangerous time to be all in on anything because uh, you have yes. desperate you have desperate governments and central banks that will pull that will change the tax laws that will change the rules regulations. Yep. Um. So when copper was at almost five dollars a pound, you had these governments in Latin America talking about putting a punitive royalty tax on the copper miners, and then the copper price crashed, and the copper miners in those countries said they're not going to invest anymore. Yeah. So that's just one example. But if Bitcoin goes to three hundred thousand or a million dollars. You'll potentially, if you have Bitcoin on a centralized exchange, if you haven't pulled it off exchange, if you haven't bought a Trezor or a Ledger by then, and you don't have it privately held and you're taking it off exchange, you're risking then the government putting a, a large target on your back for some type of windfall profits tax or something. We're in that type of environment where the governments are so desperate yep. for additional tax revenues. This is historically what's, what's happened when there's government debt crises that they yeah. uh, either increase. No, I just said con confiscation. I mean, it's not, well, it's not, so, it'd be tough well, with Bitcoin, so, but you know what I'm saying? So, so they could windfall profits tax uh, even more gold. They could try to, uh, the government, it's unlikely because a lot of Americans don't own gold anymore. So it's very unlikely that they would pull FDR in 1934 where they would confiscate gold. But in a scenario like that, we could have governments try to force people in their retirement accounts, their individual retirement accounts here in the United States, 401ks, they could try to force people to own a percentage of government bonds that yes. would be inflated away oh that's so, that's almost certainly going to happen but historically my point though is it's dangerous to be in any one single asset class because you should anticipate and you're going to need to pay attention to all these rules changes that there's going to be new tax rules changes and there's going to be new policy rules changes yeah yeah well uh, people will laugh at me but uh my honest to God, makeup of my portfolio right now is real estate, which I will be exiting in the next 90 days, uh, Bitcoin and cash. <laughs> like that's that's what I'm playing with. And obviously I have a, a small you, you have some You have some gold stocks. Well, you should be looking then at food and energy plays and additional commodities. There's some yeah. good value there. You don't have to buy all your positions at once. You probably have at least six to nine months to accumulate some commodity positions. 
Um, but I, I really think that 2023, because of all the government debt issues that were, and it's not just the U.S., all these other governments have problems too. We're going to see record amounts of gold buying by a lot of mm. foreign private citizens and central banks are buying record amounts of gold now because they're tired of the dollar system. Yep. So they're hedging. Yep. They're, they understand what the Fed is going to have to do with the Treasury. So they see the rate hikes, but you don't see foreign governments saying, hey, I can earn 4%, I can earn 4 or 5% of my Treasuries, I'm going to buy more. You're not seeing that behavior. You're seeing instead governments are saying, hey, wait a second, the U.S. Treasury, they're going to have like insane interest payments next year, a trillion dollars per year. That's a large chunk of the tax revenues. Yeah. I'm starting to, uh, these countries are starting to diversify away if they're running trade surpluses and they're buying record amounts of gold, the gold purchases have not occurred at these levels since 1967. Yeah. Well, I think what that says is that for the first time in our lives, foreign governments are questioning the solvency of the United States of America. And I hope that my audience takes that that to heart, that that's a, uh, oh, big, we, we had, a big deal. Clint, we had that in the 70s. So we, we had that too in the 70s. But Paul Volcker, because the, the U.S. debt wasn't at those levels, the U.S. Right. was still a creditor nation. We had and Paul remember, Volcker. For, for those that don't know what he had to do, hiking you know rates temporarily over 20% Fed funds rate. So yeah, I don't we don't have that guy. That that does not well, uh, ma and mathematically it doesn't work either because the no, US can't do it. Yeah, it would but um what your listeners might not be aware of is Paul Volcker actually wrote a book before he passed away. And in his memoirs, he actually said that he wished he had manipulated the gold price to prevent it from going from about 40 bucks to eight hundred dollars an ounce. No shit. Wow. Yeah. Well, I can assure you that Jerome Powell is familiar with that book. <laughs> I, I would imagine. Um, all right, brother. Well, hey, I always I always feel smarter after these talks, and I really appreciate your time. Go ahead and tell people how they can support your work and if they want to sign up for your members area so that they can get the inside track. For sure. So first, uh, first I have my YouTube channel, which is free, almost 2,000 free videos. I've interviewed a lot of big name experts for value investing, Austrian School Economics, um, Global Macro. We also have a weekly new show that my friend puts out called This Week in Charts if you're if you do short-term trades. And then for my in-depth research, I have almost 250 articles behind the paywall at only $5 a month. And I cover a lot of interesting um, global macro topics back there and also cover uh, gold mining companies, uh, oil and natural gas companies, uranium companies. And then my specialty, which a lot of people um, in the gold community don't really like, which is unfortunate because they have higher profit margins and more free cash flow throughout all levels of the cycle are these gold royalty companies. So mm -hmm. they don't mine. The banks don't want to lend money to these miners most of the time. And so what these gold royalty companies do, they're essentially financing companies and mm -hmm. they have cheaper cost of capital. And so a company like Franco Nevada, when a copper miner has financial problems, they can go in there and they can offer a copper miner, say, $100 million or $200 million to buy a slice of the revenue. It's called a stream, a slice of the revenue of the gold or silver byproduct from a copper base metal mine from a copper miner that needs cash. So these yeah. royalty and streaming companies, they own- They're, they're loan sharks, I love it. Well, that's- <laughs> I'm, kidding, uh, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, I, I think it's win-win because the mining company, some of them would have went bankrupt and their of cost course. of capital. No, well, dude, the, I, I mean, this is just like what people so, describe my my old businesses as a hard money lender. It's like, well, yeah, it was win-win usually. I, I'd say it's oh, it's win-win fair because the, the mining companies, they potentially would have went bankrupt or they would have had like insanely high borrowing costs from the private sector yeah. or, or a bank or they have no access to capital at all. So these mining companies get to stay in business. 
And the royalty and streaming companies, they're basically like a mining stock ETF with better better profit margins and more free cash flow right. that can um, own a portfolio throwing off cash of, if it's a medium-sized company, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 of these royalties and streams that the company might own. If it's a larger company like Franco Nevada, they'll own over 150 throwing right. off cash. Well, I, just to get the reason I'm not using it as a pejorative is that in the 2010-11 period, there was a lot of people that were underwater or, or they felt like they were underwater. Basically, they were defaulting on their loan, even though they had a ton of equity. So their only option was to sell their house to not lose it via foreclosure sale. But then they come to me. I give them a two year period. By then, the market has improved dramatically because we were coming out of the teeth of a recession. They end up gaining way more in equity and and keeping and you know being able to hold on to their house as opposed to uh, you know, selling under pressure during the worst possible time to sell. So th that's essentially what what these guys do. And I, I love the business model. So I think that that'll be a, a great, great opportunity for people to learn more. So how do they sign up? Patreon.com slash Wall Street for Main Street, W-L-L-S-T-F-O-R-M-A-I-N-S-T. And there's links all over the place on my YouTube channel. But if if you just want to take a look at my content, I have tons of free content on my YouTube channel, which has over 50,000 subscribers. And hopefully in 2023, I'll have 10 million views. It's getting pretty close now. It's uh, around 400,000 yeah, views left. Hell yeah. I, I love love to hear it when people I think are doing great work are, are seeing success. Jason Barak is at the top of that list. Wall Street for Main Street. Thank you for joining me, brother. It was great. And I look forward to our next discussion here because I, I can actually, you know, talk about criticize the Fed and the military industrial complex and big pharma and those other assholes. Let's, so. let's fucking go. <laughs> All right, brother. Quarter one. We'll see you again soon. Thank you guys for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that one. If you did, make sure that you hit like, comment, and subscribe, and uh, tell your family. Tell tell everybody. We're going in the next year. We're fighting nuclear war here. We gotta we gotta just batten down the hatches. All men on deck. I'm just gonna continue to throw away or throw in there metaphors that don't exactly jive with one another. Lock and load. <laughs> um, Happy New Year. I appreciate you guys for the continued support. It really uh, it means the world to me that I get to do what I'm doing uh, from the bottom of my heart. I feel, even though I sound kind of raspy because I drank with family on Christmas, um, but <laughs> I feel great and and life is great and the world is beautiful and don't let uh, all the crazy negative stuff that I tell you about on my show get you down. There's a lot, a lot of reasons to live for, a lot of beauty in this world, a lot of beauty in life and... Uh, yeah, let's let's do our best to make 2023 far far better than 2020, 21 and 22. Huh? How about that? I'll see you guys soon. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?